Claire, thank you for being here. It's really great to have you. If we were an old-time movie serial, and this began with the recap of the story to date and what we might anticipate in the story going forward, how do you bring people up to speed? I've worked on this one story for nearly five years, and it has just kept me on my toes with development after development. And the latest, I guess, is the ongoing regime change in Malaysia that was brought on by this corruption scandal. Just a week ago, over in the courts in the United States, we saw a string of indictments to see 330 million that is sitting in a legal account at Clyde & Co. in London. Now, that's money that the Department of Justice alleged was stolen from 1MDB, and it takes the ticker over 2 billion now as far as asset seizures are concerned by the United States alone. At least 5 billion was stolen from 1MDB, and that adds up to a cost to Malaysia of about $12 billion in terms of the money that was borrowed and then the interest that's been owed and all the rest. Within that seizure notice filed by the Department of Justice, which now runs to 300 pages, journalists like myself keep finding nuggets. So in the latest developments, it's been revealed that 160 million stolen 1MDB dollars was paid to help the brother of the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi pay off his loan for his super yacht. It's an incredible story where this money has gone, who's got involved, who's been scooping out the profits. One of the other latest indictments has been of a Mubadala executive, that's the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Abu Dhabi, accused of having taken 10 million as a bribe for helping launder this money. There have been numerous, well, at least two imprisoned in Abu Dhabi, officials also involved in scooping off, in one case, $500 million. So it goes on and on. You really broke this story. Congratulations for doing that. But tell me a little bit how the story begins. Well, it goes back to what this sort of corruption does. I had taken time out from being a run-of-the-mill journalist. I was working in British television originally to do a story that went close to my heart, which was the destruction of the third largest rainforest in the world in Borneo. And that happened to be where I spent my childhood. And I had encountered just how devastating the destruction was. And I started looking into the corruption that was driving that dreadful situation. I had been looking at the various forms of official corruption in East Malaysia for some time, exposing senior ministers for having taken logging kickbacks. And eventually you keep on looking up higher because you wonder why these guys aren't being prosecuted. And the reason is that the corruption goes to the top. And I heard about this fund, 1MDB. That was closely associated with the prime minister because he was directing it himself. He was also the finance minister, helpfully, for him. This was supposed to be a development fund that he had started to invest in profitable enterprises to help the impoverished of Malaysia. People were suspicious of it. Everyone reckoned it was his slush fund. Of course, that's all gossip. You know, in my position, you have to prove these things. Somebody who was very well known as being associated with that fund was a flamboyant character who had been getting himself international headlines as a big spender. A young guy in his late 20s called Joe Lowe. He'd gone to Harrow School and then President Trump's old college, Wharton, in the United States. And he had used that background and the people he'd met to set himself up as a supposed wheeler dealer on the international stage. There'd been a number of stories in the newspapers about his extraordinary high-rolling expenditures in casinos and clubs and so forth. And he was mixing in Hollywood and sort of wowing out the gossip columnists. 
big favorite of the New York Post on page six. Absolutely. They first identified him as the nightclub whale, the big spender who was buying scores of champagne bottles for starlets in the New York clubs. He was also spending huge amounts in Las Vegas. It was ostentatious spending, and if he'd been a little older, he might have known better. But it was helpful because he was known also to be the advisor on 1MDB and close to Najib's family, although he was denying an ongoing association with 1MDB. So how do I come in? I know about this background because I'm interested in a section of what's going on in Malaysia. And then I get a tip off in early 2014 that the son of the prime minister of Malaysia has emerged suddenly in Hollywood as a major producer of a multi-million dollar film, The Wolf of Wall Street, which was coming out at that time with huge panache starring Leo DiCaprio. And of course, it was all about thieves and gangsters spending huge amounts of money. Now, what intrigued me about that was when I started to look into the background, looking at the launch events and listening into the Golden Globe Awards ceremony, and it became quite clear that present at Reza Aziz's side, that's the name of the producer of Wolf of Wall Street, the son of the Prime Minister of Malaysia, was this character, this flamboyant spendthrift, Joe Lowe, who was associated with 1MDB. And by that time, this was three or four years into 1MDB's existence as a major sovereign wealth fund, the questions had started to arise about its apparent missing millions. And so I could see in plain sight that there were dots to be joined. And I started writing about it and asking the relevant question, which was, was any of the money that was disappearing, the billions that appeared to be missing from the accounts of 1MDB, related to Reza Aziz's $100 million movie that he had just invested in Hollywood? The answer was yes, of course. It took me a while to prove it. (laughs) Many legal threats later. The looting of the 1MDB fund went on for a number of years, crime in plain sight. Have you thought about how this went on for so long? I think they're all shocked and horrified that they didn't get away with it. They thought they had the perfect situation, which was an all-powerful head of state who could sort out any internal complaints and did, who could approach the banks with the shield of this sovereign wealth fund. What brought them to book was someone who was prepared to come out and ask the questions. And that doesn't get done often enough. As a journalist, you're pressing your nose against the window pane, really, of a darkened room. There's so little you can see from the outside because it's all sewn up. Banking secrecy, offshore secrecy. Banks take months, if not years, to report suspicious transactions. And then nine times out of 10 or even more, they're not acted on. And I could see this. I mean, I've been operating in this field for some time. And I knew when I started to really get some hard documentation. It took me a year to get the hard documentation on 1MDB, that in order to get really any attention, I was going to have to play a juggling act. I was going to have to get sufficient media attention so that actually the regulators couldn't ignore it. That was the game I had to play. And it took someone who was really determined, focused and had the time and the motivation really to make sure it all went through. I went to big newspapers and mostly they pulled out The moment they started to make inquiries into this scandal, they would receive multiple legal actions, vexatious, but nonetheless expensive for any newspaper to handle. So there was very little media appetite. There is very little media appetite to take on the super rich when it comes to these sorts of issues and the banks. So I think it's very difficult that the system is skewed to allow these things to go through. 
what's obvious to the outsider. You can see it's all dodgy. You can see it's all suspicious. You can see the banks are pushing stuff through, but you can't prove it. Entertaining reading, actually, is the 300-page indictment noticed by the Department of Justice because it details exactly how the money was thrust through the banks. And you see the so-called due diligence going on within the right departments with the banks. And you can see they're just looking for the window dressing. Once the excuse comes up, they don't drill down. It's as suspicious as hell. They could drill down, but they don't. In the end, if it's a government that's pushing it or a very rich entity or large corporation that's pushing it, they'll shrug their shoulders and say, OK, we'll take it on trust. And that's how time and again they got away with it. I think you've just given a homework assignment to many of the people listening to the podcast that they pick up those 300 pages, the DOJ Mm. indictment, and read those. And this story, I think, is pretty interesting because every once in a while you see compliance officers and others pushing back and saying, we can't do this. Sometimes Jolo goes to another bank to get a transaction done, or those people are overruled. Time and again, what I'm thinking of Falcon Bank, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, BSI Bank, if you read through, you can actually see the conversations with compliance people trying to flag up a suspicious transaction. Goldman Sachs, one of the most senior board member for Asia, contested the deal and was removed from his post and overridden by the top people in the bank. And the worst of this, of course, I mean, in one case in Singapore, the head of Falcon Bank, which has now pretty much collapsed as a result of this scandal, he did time in jail in Singapore, even though he was the one that flagged up the suspicious transactions. He got overruled by the board, but he was the one that did the jail time. So it's a real problem. And I feel very badly for people who are trying to do this compliance job when they're faced with this kind of pressure from the top. And I really think it needs to be pressure on the top from government, from our governments, from our international community. The system has to be improved. What are you focused on now in terms of reporting on corruption? You know, you're waiting for the next move. So Goldman Sachs, within the next two, three weeks, we're going to see in advance of the American election, I think, whatever deal Goldman Sachs has arrived at with the Department of Justice on its role. Two people have been indicted, two senior Goldman Sachs former executives. One has already pled guilty and Goldman has been fighting back against criminal proceedings against the bank and are likely to have to pay a big fine. And the conventional wisdom is that they will avoid criminal charges as a bank. If you go ask me, there should be criminal charges, but they can sue me for that. The evidence is devastating. And they've already, of course, paid a massive fine to Malaysia for its criminal role in facilitating a $6.5 billion bogus bond issue for 1MDB, one of the major sort of loss-making enterprises um, that was mainly looted by Joe Lowe and Najib and these conspirators. That's one thing to watch for. You're suggesting, too, there's a little bit of a timetable that they may want to get that done. Yes. (laughs) Well, um, the present attorney general has taken personal cognizance over the case. He's enforced an ethics waiver because normally he would be regarded as having a conflict of interest in taking oversight of this particular case in that his former law firm has been engaged by Goldman Sachs to fight its corner in the matter. So I can see that there would be pressure for a resolution before this election. It's generally agreed and reported and on all my sources say that we can expect some kind of deal to be arrived at before the election. This one case sheds light on the entire system by which these sorts of thefts permeate our societies, our decision-making structures, our centres of power. A lobbyist pled guilty two weeks ago 
in America to receiving millions from JOLO for lobbying the Trump administration on behalf of JOLO and Najib Razak to try and stop these DOJ investigations into 1MDB. In the indictment to which she pleaded guilty, it is stated that the former chairman of the Republican National Committee was in league with her and took an eight million upfront bribe to assist in this lobbying. And they arranged a 75 million success fee if they managed to close down the 1MDB investigation by influencing inappropriately and corruptly and illegally the Department of Justice. That individual, Elliot Broidy, is apparently in discussions with the Department of Justice about how his position on this is going to be dealt with. There's yet to be an indictment against him, but it's all there to be read what the Department of Justice have accused him of doing. We know the detriment that these thefts impose on the communities, the vulnerable countries with corrupt governments who have these billions looted from them. But we can see through 1MDB, step by step, how that corrupt money comes into our own societies, into our own countries, to our detriment as well. Well, this is great. I think you've given us two things to be watching for, too. I just want you to think a little bit about with all of the money laundering that happened from the Baltics into the Nordics and in the EU, the EU is talking increasingly about transparency. There is some movement to have corporate ownership more clear. Where do you sit right now? Are you feeling a little bit hopeful? Where are we in terms of fighting corruption? They have their finger on it. Transparency is crucial. And I can say this from the position of a journalist. So nothing gets done unless the public find out about it, really. Journalists have to be able to investigate and shed light. And right now, it's almost impossible. Unless, like I did, you can persuade people to put their lives on the line, their careers on the line, their reputations on the line and become whistleblowers. Unless you can get people to do that, the system makes it impossible to find out what's going on. Unless a company register is open, unless you can tell who the beneficial owners are of companies, respectable entities should not be dealing with them because it enables massive criminal activity to be hidden. And it's as simple as that. Joe Lowe and his associates had a wonderful time creating bogus offshore entities that sounded as if they were subsidiaries of the most respectable organisations. He shunted over a billion dollars of stolen money through something called Blackstone Asia Real Estate Limited in the BVI, which to all intents and purposes, everybody was led to assume was or related to a major... Exactly. Yeah. The thieves from Abu Dhabi, they set up a subsidiary called Tazamim. Now, Tazamim exists in Abu Dhabi as a major subsidiary of Adia, their biggest sovereign wealth fund, except Tazamim Real Estate Seychelles was not. It was an entity being exploited by officials from sovereign wealth funds in Abu Dhabi who were stealing and processing money. I mean, I could name you a dozen other similar bogus entities that were using this same ridiculous system of offshore companies with names that sound as if they're okay. I don't know, how can banks be so negligent to not check on such basic errors? They will take things at face value and usually nobody questions it because you need a whistleblower to prove the fraud. As you said, you have an admiration for those that have put themselves on the line mm. to fight corruption, and think we can all have an admiration for you. Thank you very much for having put yourself on the line. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Crime Matters. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Claire Rucastle-Brown of the Sarawak Report. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.